Hey gang, it's John. As everyone knows by now, we lost Tony Lewis of the outfield recently. Total shocker. Nobody knows why. I still haven't heard why. Uh, and it was a couple of weeks ago. But as we like to do whenever someone we love and someone who's been on the show even already passes away, we want to pay a tribute to them and honor them as best we can. So we are bringing on William Whitman. William was the producer who did their first two albums, the outfield's two, first two albums, Play Deep and Bangin'. And he was a guest on our show, what, about a year and a half ago? Something like that? Fantastic interview. He worked with The Fix, all these other people. I loved having William on the show. So it made sense to bring William back, talk about Tony, what Tony was like, what the outfield was like, and just pay, and pay our respects and honor that fantastic music and the amazing voice that came from Tony Lewis. Okay? We're kicking it off with... With uh, William's favorite song here, we'll kick it off with one of mine at the end. So, okay, so for starters, we usually bookend these conversations with um, favorite songs. And I'm curious what your, if you have a favorite outfield song, it can be one you worked on or one you didn't work on. It's unlikely to be one I didn't work on. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd probably say uh, All the Love is the one that uh, really comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, your love is obvious. It's obviously the most important one to all of us. But I don't know. In terms of my favorite, all the love, all the love's the one that always stood out for me. Yeah, yeah. I uh, they were such a special band that I, I I have to admit, in real time back then when they were coming out, I was not a fan. I did not. Tony's voice was too much for me. But it wasn't until I got older and I realized how fantastic those pop songs were mixed with his voice that I became a giant fan to where I had to like own everything, you know? And it's uh, interesting, so, you know, your experience is very atypical that most yeah. people either immediately loved them or hated them and stuck with it. You know? <laughs> I know. I know. I'm so grateful that I came around because they really were special. Okay. You produced the first two albums and I'm curious, these are what launched their career. When, when you come in and you're working with them, what do you tell yourself or tell them that you need to do to make sure that you get them across? I will tell you, I don't know if we talked about this before or not, but I will tell you that I remember in the first meeting, the, the first converse, long conversation, it was, you know, there was a hi, how are you with John Spinks, but the meeting that got me the gig, basically, they were talking to a few different producers that the A&R guy had recommended. And we had a lunch meeting and I had thought about it having listened to the demos for a while. And I know I said to him, here's the thing, if you make a record with me, I don't want to make a record that is a photographic representation of the band as a trio, which is what they were. I don't want a, a, a first police album or something like that that just sounds like three guys in a room. I want to do a hundred guitars and a hundred vocals and make it drums huge and make everything sort of stretched and exaggerated and get the most impact out of the music rather than just cinema verite. And I saw John's eyes sort of light up in the moment and go, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want my band to be nice. that big, not nice. just a picture of the, and I don't know that I was so focused. I mean, you're always focused on a so-called hit and what you think's going to get on the radio, which at the time was, you know, the thing that mattered. Yeah. I, that's always in the back of my mind, but I was mostly just focused on 
that vision of what the band should sound like in my head and how to make that happen in the moment. You know, so we were focused on making what we thought was a great record that we all enjoyed much more than on making a hit, although obviously you're trying to make a hit at the same time. Yeah. What was Tony like as a person? And before you answer, let me give you my impression because I interviewed him, like I said, probably two years ago. Yeah. And I came away with the very distinct, and you tell me if I'm wrong, very distinct impression that Tony was actually a very regular blue collar guy who was blessed from the heavens with this angelic, fantastic voice. And if he hadn't discovered that voice or his, or, or music, he would have been a hard hat and lunch pail type guy who just happened to be able to sing. I just got the impression that without, if he weren't a rock star, he would, he just would be the most regular down to earth, blue collar type of guy. He just stumbled into this. That's my impression anyway. Well, I think that's true as far as it goes, but you could say that about all three of them that you really? know, you're, talking, you're talking about super working class East Enders, you know, really the sort of barely, you know, on the, on the fringe of middle class, lower yeah. middle class, working class in England, you know, the East end of London, especially back then was not sort of trendy and happening. It was mm -hmm. kind of the dangerous, you know, previously been the, the, you know, the low life area. And, and, uh, you know, so you're talking about three super working class kids who all had either factory jobs or retail jobs or Alan, you know, worked in automobiles a little bit. And they just, they, they all would have been that had they not had musical talent. I mean, obviously of a certain age, a lot of us just sort of heard the Beatles, saw the Beatles said, Oh, I want to do that. And, mm -hmm. and, got guitars, phone bands, and mm -hmm. hoped, but, you know, there's a very tiny percentage that goes on to be A, talented enough, and be lucky enough to find the three of them, find each other in a way that makes a unit that transcends uh, the sum, you know, it becomes bigger than the individual parts. As you say, Tony just happens to have this incredible voice mm -hmm. that happens to fit perfectly with the melodies John's writing that yes. John could not have delivered in a way that would have, Perfect. I mean, I love John's voice, but yeah. as an accent, as a color, it would never have been the voice of the radio single That's that exactly it. Tony had to be. Plus happened to be a really talented bass player. I mean, you know, it's not flashy bass, but he was very, very yeah. competent. You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of parts to put together. Incredible drummer, great songwriter, guitar player, super singer and bass player. You know, it, as I said, you have to be lucky enough in that little neighborhood to find each other and and hit yeah. it off and, and make it happen. Yeah. What uh, I mean, how I don't remember how what the dynamic what my impression is that John is just this fantastic pop rock songwriter. Tony's his instrument to get these songs across it's primarily the two of them uh i i'm blanking on the third guy alan alan jackman yeah yeah the drummer yes yeah well um, no no small part because an amazing drummer i mean yes he is yeah and crucial to the sound of those first couple of albums especially yeah. When you put your production, those gated snares or whatever on it, that makes it work. It's none of that. There's none, no gated. That, that's it's the bane of my existence. People say this more about Cindy's first record, but there is oh. no gating going on. Anyway, really? Yeah. There's a triggered sample on the snare drum in the outfield record, which is a sound I made with a uh, Simmons drum. So it's an electronic mm -hmm. gouge. 
that yes. is tri- is triggered on the snares on that, especially on that first oh. album, someone on the second. But that's all it is. There's kind of a trailing electronic uh, that goes with the snares, but the drums are just sound like big drums in a room, except for that. Okay. And anyway, but yeah. No, that's I, fascinating. I mean, you you take what you're given and try to make something out of it, right? That's uh-huh. the producer's job. So when I saw Alan and heard Alan play. I went, okay, drums are important here. Drums are yeah. not just keeping time. This guy's right. amazing. Right. In fact, right. I think I pushed for Phil's in a lot of places where he was even less comfortable. That Ooh, very uh, nice. He still makes fun of me that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I want him to be Keith Moon, and, that's, and he thinks that's messy and horrible. You know, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. So um, when you go in to do Bangin' and Play Deep had been such a success – yeah. Are they the same guys they were the first time around or had success changed them at all? It had made them happier and more comfortable. I think it made, it had not changed them in any way to the detriment of our relationship. I would say, if that's what you're asking, they weren't all stars or anything like that. And I think they knew we had a little, you know, the four of us is plus Frankie Callahan, the five of us had pretty much made that happen. And so the only difference I think is that John very much felt the pressure uh-huh. of, you know, we were this big next year. I want to be that much mm-hmm. bigger. You know, he was, he was the one who was the most driven. I think that the rest of them could have said, well, that was great. You know, we had a yeah. big hit. We're good. We're good. You know, yeah. so, which in many respects is healthier, but you know, you always need, you need the McCartney, you need the Townsend, you need the one guy who's pushing the other guys who might otherwise not want to keep swinging for the fence to mix the metaphors. Yeah. The timing on all of this, of course, anyone passing away is terrible. Anyone passing away at only 62 yeah. is really terrible. And But I feel especially bad about this because I, when I talked to Tony, it was clear, too, that after John had passed away, he felt pretty lost. Sure. I, don't, I don't know that he knew what to do with himself. His sure. musical mate, you know, was gone and that he didn't know that he could do it on his own. And he was just finally getting back on the saddle, putting yeah. out a really great solo album, going on tour. Yeah, they were those 80s tours, but those are fun. I mean, they're, I love those kinds of things. And I thought that was a really perfect place for him to reintroduce himself out to the world. Like, here I am, I'm, I'm getting back into it. It felt like he finally kind of got comfortable with his place in life. And then to have it go away like this is so tragic, I think. You know? Yeah, we, we haven't been in touch in, in, in years, I'm sorry to say. I, mean, I talked to Alan, but I really haven't talked to Tony in a long time. But my impression was, yes, it clearly was going to be difficult to sort of say no more outfield. I mean, whatever that was was going to be gone but you know like in anything people always look at musicians and they say uh, oh he's still doing that but nobody looks at the dentist and says oh you're still you're still doing that at 60 right. it's like yeah if you want to still work you still do what you do right i think it must have been difficult for him to figure out what a tony lewis as a name means rather than as an outfield oh it's we booked the outfield we booked tony lewis as a jump you know you have to figure out what that's going to be and and it seemed to me like he was i i love that he thought to put out a record on his own in fact i was even thinking of you know how can we figure out how to do something and find songs for him and 
it's it's all that much more sad now that you know I didn't manage to get in touch with him just before. But yeah, yeah, I do think you know. Right. Do I, you know what happened? Do we know no, how he passed? Yeah. No, I think uh, you know the family's being typically British private about yeah. the whole thing, and I can't blame Carol for that. I mean, it's you know, it's got to be extremely rough no matter what, and I don't yeah. think airing you know the story in public it doesn't it kind of doesn't mean i don't know uh, at least i feel that way it doesn't mean anything to have a bunch of strangers tell you how sad they are you know it's like it's nice i'm 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 sure it's nice to know people cared about him but it doesn't really help yeah anyway. yeah. yeah i, I uh, i've thought about that too it's tricky this thing because yes families deserve their privacy but with the way the world is right now, everyone's minds go to things like COVID, which I don't think it was. I don't think but, it was. But, and then when you die out of the blue, my mind goes, I, I worry a lot. Is it, is it suicide? Was it a sudden heart attack? Was there, you know, as far as I knew, he wasn't, anyway. And it's not, it, yes, uh, yes, it's, much it's more not in my business. It's much more difficult. Fan, I need closure. You know? Yeah, well, it's, it's much more difficult. I mean, we knew John was sick and then had recovered, but, we, you know, we kind of knew it was in the back of your head that he could get ill again. And, you know, yeah. it's, 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 no, there was no indication that at least nothing that I had heard or, or anybody I know had heard that Tony was ill. So, no, I don't think it was COVID, but, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. But, I mean, it's, it, it, was, it, it was so out of the blue that it makes you think, Card attack yeah. or something that, yeah. you know, that, yeah, that no, exactly. nobody saw coming. Right. So tell us a Tony Lewis story. Tell us, I mean, you've, you know, you've gone to the pub with the guy, you've worked with him, you've coached him, you've encouraged him. Tell us a Tony Lewis story. What's he like? I'll tell you that, you know, of Tony was very, very funny, knew every line of Monty Python and, and you know, that sort of thing that was, was always very good with imitations did it did an absolutely hysterically brilliant david essex imitation uh -huh. and and you know in the middle if things ever got even a little tense if it was like oh we're not getting a line and he's singing and singing he would he would throw out that you know, he'd all of a sudden talk to you as david essex and stardust and, mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. and break up the tension in the room by being funny i mean yeah. it's hard to think of tony not laughing and joking and being being the light-hearted one in the boat not that everybody wasn't but in particular he was the joker you know that it's i don't know it's hard to not think of him that way you know that i i don't know that i have a specific story but tony was always the one who was ready to have a laugh about every, yeah. anything in the, in the tensest moment in the most difficult moment tony was laughing about it which was I just kind of great I believe it. You know, we I touched on this earlier. It John was the primary songwriter in the group almost yeah. entirely. Yeah. Does he just what was their dynamic? Does John just write things, bring them to Tony and Tony interprets the vocals? Does Tony have input on is he even musically inclined that way? I mean, his solo album would would make you think that he sure. was because those are great songs. So sure. I'm wondering what their dynamic was. Yeah, you know, uh, you have to say if McCartney has a melody, Lennon's going to sing harmony to that melody. Or, or if, if, he, if Paul wants John to sing this bit of his song, he's going to say, here's the melody. He's not going to say, you're a brilliant songwriter, write something. Yeah. You know, so yes, sure, Tony is quite capable, but the dynamic here was John has written the song. And there were very few places 
where we might say, can we change that one thing? Or that's not, that's out of the range or out of the code. Can we change something? I mean, these were discussions we had, but mostly it was John would sit there and sing a line and, and, and that would be what then we would try to get with Tony. There were a couple of places where John left us some space. I, I, it's hard to say why, but I mean, for example, the whole outro of Your Love, I mean, there is no more vocal, basically. Mm-hmm. It's just a long guitar outro, and I wanted to have re- sort of repeating presence of the vocal, uh, aside from the background vocal bursts. And so Tony and I sat there, John wasn't even in the room, and Tony and I just line by line wrote those ad-libs. I mean, it's not like writing a song, yeah, but, yeah. but if you listen to that now, there is a real shape and ebb and flow to that outro that I think is really great. And I know John just came back in and listened to it and went, right, well done, and we were done, you know. But mm-hmm. the bulk of the songwriting was clearly John's melodies. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like he turned over chords and let Tony write the melodies, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. Do you think the outfield have a legacy do you think i mean obviously time has shown that the quality of their output is so high that it's worth discovering but do you think that a new generation or a younger generation is going to find them and discover them and love them just as much i worry about bands like the outfield who are so good but are in that kind of middle tier they're not obscure and they're not huge you know yeah there are thousands of those, right? Yep. But it's hard to say that, you know, because the way people ingest and discover music is so different and so evolving and, you know, it's never going to be what it was. But if you had asked me that in 1995, I would have said no way. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is that their legacy in some bizarre way grows, that I'm amazed that, I mean, I can't really talk about the specifics because of an NDA, but for example, I was approached by somebody about a big kind of uh, virtual reality kind of project that they were doing that would invite, and they, they were saying, we were thinking of using the outfield in this, really? uh, your love in particular, and it was, and wanted to talk about it. And, and, and then of course there's been the stupid, you know, dryer sheet commercial uh-huh. with it and it's, and it's played it, it's played at baseball games and football yeah. games. And, you know, it's it, it, in a weird way, it's almost like the leg, like the reputation is growing in in an odd way but i can't predict that that doesn't hit a wall at some point you know it could continue to grow or it could just be like oh yeah that thing that was big in 2020 for no explicable reason yeah i guess if nothing else they have a signature song in your love that will probably forever be played at baseball games and and other and whatever and so yeah it's funny that i mean it's 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 i'm both grateful and proud but at the same time it's always irritating in a in a, in a subtle way i'd say it's too strong a word but it's you know it's it's funny to reduce a band's whole career yes. or even or even a whole album to one song and that's it it's like you know it it's outside of the hardcore faithful fans that they really are essentially one song yeah yeah it's a shame i think about that and he was much bigger than the outfield for someone like rick springfield whose career almost always gets reduced to Jesse's Girl, even though there's tons of other top 40 hits in there, but they don't get mentioned. Everyone just wants to keep talking about Jesse's Girl. And I think, yeah. can we not well, move on from Jesse's Girl, please? 
you know? Yeah, I mean, but again, he has an acting career, so True. that, you know, there's a whole other side to that. But if yeah. you just looked at record sales, you say he's bigger than the outfield. I'm not so sure. Mm, you might be right. You might be right. You're yeah. right. Have, speaking of record sales, have you, did you keep up with, their, with the outfield's output the rest of their career? Somewhat. Albums? Okay. Somewhat. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, I it's like watching your kids go out in the world and <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, even though we were on and off estranged to some degree, yeah, sure. I mean I'm a, I'm aware, yeah. Yeah. I really like Voices of Babylon as well. So those first three are just bulletproof. It starts to drop off a little bit, but I feel like their last two albums, Anytime Now and Replay. Yeah. Yeah, are both fantastic. Yeah, albums. but that's all—that's also the return of Alan on the drums, which I Good think point. makes a big yeah. difference. And, the, and just—and I'm not just because of his drumming, but because of the chemistry that you yes. know, it's like, oh, we're we're 18 again, or or 25, yep. or whatever they were when they started to play together, and you know, you get some of that coming back. I have to say, I am not a Voices of Babylon fan, and not mm. just because I didn't make the record, but because I felt it tossed away the sort of signature sound we had created for them. True, very true. Which to me was not a smart decision. It was like, it was like a bit of saying, oh, we're going to turn our back on that. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but sales reflected that. Yes. And uh, going back to my initial statement with my trajectory of the band, I hated Voices of Babylon when it came out. I uh, I was already iffy about them anyway, and I just <laughs> thought, my, I remember my friend bought it, and I was like, you bought that? And he's like, yeah, it's actually really good. And I said, there's no way it could be good. And then that becomes, as as everything else, as I get older, I love that album too. I I, I appreciate the, the change that they took. At the time, it felt, like you were saying, too drastic of a change. Yeah. But now for what it is, I can appreciate it for what it is. And like I said, I really like their last two albums that hardly anyone even knows about, but those are so good. Sure. Anyway. And listen, I, I've been, as a producer, I've been guilty of that going the other way. I mean, I've listened to a band's first two albums and they hire me to do the third or the fourth or whatever. And I've said, oh, I don't like what they did. I'll do something completely different. And, and in retrospect, I look back now and go, that's really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's, it's like, it's one thing to say we're going to, introduce an element of difference uh -huh. here or you know we're going to add synthesizers we're going to take away synthesizers whatever it is but i don't think i would you know produce queen and say we're not going to do any background vocals <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so true yeah. okay so in closing thanks for doing this william and i we had to pay tribute to tony do you have a lasting memory and i don't know if it's a personal memory like some something you all shared in person or if it's a lasting song that hit you at a certain time or just what is your lasting what are you going to think about when you think about tony in the outfield as i said i think i think about him joking and laughing yeah. and being the first one to launch into a monty python dialogue that <laughs> seemed to relate to something we were doing and often didn't and i i don't know i mean it was you know, he was relentlessly a pleasure. I mean, uh -huh. I never, I never had a minute with Tony where I went, "Oh, that fucking guy." Like, <laughs> you know, he just—he was always just a sweetheart. You know, yeah. and and that's why it's yeah. kind of awful. Yeah. And that voice. I mean, that voice is unmistakable, and uh, it's a miracle. And I'm just grateful that he found it, and they found each other, yeah. and were able to 
produce what they did. You know, get it out in the world. Those songs are amazing. Yeah. Great band. Well, thanks for talking with me, William. There you have it. Hope this reminded everybody how great the outfield were. They never really put out a bad album. I mean, the post-peak period was a, not as good as peak period, but it still wasn't bad. Those things are great. I debated whether what to play here because I wanted to, I really want to try and turn you guys on to the last two outfield albums that came out in the 2000s. They are so fantastic and no one knows about them. But I want to play something else that William did. So this is Long Time Gone off of Bangin'. Great song. Doesn't even sound like Tony. What a fantastic vocalist he was. Anyway, we love the outfield. We love Tony. And we're so thankful that William came back and paid tribute to him with us. Thanks, everybody. We love you all. Should I listen to my heart or my